Hi, I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit, which responds to specific tasking from national security and government organizations, particularly helping them understand current, emerging and future threats. To find out more about the threat assessment support provided by Jane's, please visit our website, janes.com slash threats. On this episode of the World of Intelligence podcast, I'll be talking to my guests, Air Vice Marshal Sean Corbett, who after a career Air Force, including working in senior intelligence roles, is now a senior advisor to Jane's, and Harry Kemsley, also formerly of the RAF, but currently the global vice president of Jane's, responsible for our national security and government products and services. So uh, welcome to both of you. It'll be great to get your thoughts um, in this sort of current time that we are, these extraordinary times we're living in at the moment on intelligence and how it's used, and particularly thinking in terms of our audience, the sort of interest they have in maybe doing intelligence better in in the ways that they are currently doing it, but also thinking outside of that field, what are the sort of things you think that they can bring in that they're not currently doing, perhaps, which they should be thinking about? And so I've got a few questions around those general areas, which I think it'll be useful to get your thoughts on and actually be, be very valuable to get your insights in terms of your previous experience, but also where you think intelligence. And in this context, we're talking, obviously, about open source intelligence, where that's going to go in the future. So with the first question I wanted to sort of kick off with was something specifically for those people in our audience who are working in intelligence um, at the moment giving them some thoughts from yourselves and some experience, some of your experience in terms of supplying intelligence to commanders and senior decision makers. What has been, in your experience, of utmost importance and what are the most challenging difficulties? I think in a few words, I would, I would start that by saying that in my experience uh, of making decisions, one of the biggest concerns I had is that I had a complete and accurate uh, set of information to make a decision on. And having the assurance that I was making a decision on the best available information was often a concern of mine. And actually, that's one of the big driving factors for me in terms of how we're developing Jane's, but we'll come to that later, I'm sure. So the ability to step into a decision-making cycle with assured, complete, accurate information is key, but equally being able to do that in time. It's all very well having the perfect information that arrived five minutes after it was needed and therefore had no real value at all. So doing it in a timely and accurate fashion is evidently key. Giving the commander some assurance or the decision maker some assurance they're working with the best available information is going to be important. And you mentioned open source information, and clearly Jane's being an open source information and intelligence business would say this, but it's true. Increasingly now, the open source environment, the publicly available information is the source we go to first. It is the place that intelligence communities should and could go to first to get the best and clearest picture about emerging events. If you think about the omnipotent availability of social media, for example, as an event unwinds in real time, most of the information available about it in the first period of minutes, hours, is available through open sources. It's not available through uh, classified means necessarily. And so getting plugged into that, understanding what's happening in near real time or in real time demands that we get into uh, the open source environment. But equally, as things start to emerge beyond that initial moment, again, there's lots of great information available in the open source and publicly available information. The key, though, before I hand over to Sean, is doing it in an assured way, getting to the place where you've got verified outcomes, not just raw data pouring out of open sources. And I think the curation of what's in the open source is is the key for me, getting that to the commander in a way that the commander can use on time, but with assurance. Sean? Yeah, it won't surprise to know that I agree with all of that. So looking at it from the the end of the uh, uh, the other end of the telescope in terms of the person that was providing that senior commander with the intelligence, you know, there's there's a saying in the military that you know if you get um 100% of the intelligence late, even five minutes, is pointless. 
where 60% is on time is far better. And of course, you know, these commanders need to make decisions with the best available information they have at the time. So they're going to make that information. So, so you know, time is critical. Um, and, and of course, the second part of that is the accuracy of it. We always used to talk about it as fighting the CNN factor. And the perceived wisdom is that, you know, you're never going to fight the social media, the, the BBC reporting, etc. So the, the intelligence role is actually to get it accurately, you know, later. I don't subscribe to that. And I don't think many people do even anymore because you can, with all the open source, you can sort of not beat the CNN factor, but be in parallel with it. The difference being that uh, exactly as Harry said, is you've got to be right. You've got to be accurate. You know, the first report is pretty much 100% of the time wrong or inaccurate or, or at least not complete. So using the open source data, which is going to be immediately available, that kind of hones you into what the questions may be. And then you can use the exquisite stuff to validate that and to assure, as, as Harry said, it's absolutely essential. So a commander is going to want to, and he's got to trust his intelligence specialist. He's got to trust what you're saying to him, and that only comes with reputation by getting it right. And you can only get it right by using all the available data and all the available information. One of the things we used to struggle with was, and, and even more so now, actually, is being overwhelmed with the amount of information that's coming in. Now, sometimes that brings with it a conscious or an unconscious bias, and that's both from the analyst's perspective but also the commander's perspective. Uh, I could tell you some quite scary stories in Afghanistan where you know, one particular three-star commander who will remain nameless, was so adamant that his thesis on what was happening with the Taliban at the time uh, in Afghanistan was right, that he refused to accept or believe any intelligence that said that basically these, the Taliban were resurging and say, no, no, our, 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 our tax are right. So there was a moral component to this as well. As an intelligence specialist, you've really got to have that moral courage to say it how it is. But then you've got to be able to back that up with the evidence. And it's quite tricky, actually, particularly if you're a relatively junior person in front of a senior office. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen sometimes. And then the, and the other aspect that's the external one is the radio four factor, as I used to call it. The first thing you do on the way to work um, in somewhere like permanent joint headquarters is put on radio four because you know that your, your commanders are going to be listening to it on the way in as well. And the first question they'll ask you in the intelligence brief is something about that. So you've got to A, anticipate the question and B, have an answer that's a little bit more value added, because at the end of the day, it's the value added that that is really important uh, in the intelligence process. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Validated, assured, rapid information. Um, when you talk about making sure that information is assured and verified, and this is a question for Harry first. Um, Harry, how does Jane's go about making sure that we can be very confident about the open source intelligence that we produce? And how are we securing our, our um, intelligence that we provide to customers uh, in this sort of day and age? Well, a point that Sean made a second ago about the vast amount of content that's available out there that you can get through very simple tools. You can go and collect lots of information it is, is the first thing. You need a lot of information and you need it from a lot of different sources. I'll come back to the different sources in a moment. Um, you also need a, an ability to absorb, understand, connect, fuse, all those sorts of steps through the collation and processing stage of an intelligence cycle. And then the ability to start to verify and analyze. All of those elements are elements of um, the way Jane's curates its content. But what I would say first, in terms of a principal statement to answer that question, is that Jane's doesn't take raw content and pass it straight to a customer. Because to do so would be to just fill the customer's ears, their IT systems with noise, potentially. And that's unhelpful. Mm -hmm. So we may not get things out within seconds of our receipt of it. 
we'll get it out in minutes to hours to ensure that when it's arrived, it's been verified, it's been cross-referenced, it's been assured, to use that word again, in order that when the person who's going to read it does read it, they find value in it and can trust it to be used, uh, not necessarily actionable in the sense that anything James produces will create an immediate action by the customer, but maybe gives them an indicator, a pointer to where they may need to go next, as Sean put it a moment ago, in terms of their more exotic capabilities they have available to them behind the firewall. So the way James does that in, in very simple terms is to have multiple sources. Um, one of the great things about being in part of the James community is the hundreds, nay thousands of contributors we have who are on the ground in the countries, working in the communities, within the organizations that we are reporting on and, and talking about in our intelligence. So we will, of course, use modern technology to scrape content off the internet, go and find publicly available sources, of course. We will also, though, use this very large contributor network. The combination of those two very large sets of data uh, will then be analyzed through what we call the triple lock process. And triple lock process is basically in essence, three communities of people, an editorial community who are auditing and checking for biases and so on and valid sources, the analyst community in terms of what have you been analyzing? Why do you believe that's the right source? Why do you believe that's a credible outcome from that event, for example? And then thirdly, the people that actually project that out into the community of customers, the front of house, if you like, they all have to agree on what we are producing, publishing and discussing. And then that third community I mentioned, the people that are front of house actually getting the information out to the customers, they're also the feedback loop. So that if a customer says, well, James, that's all very well, but I know that's not true, on the occasions that that happens, which isn't often, but when it happens, we take that very readily back into Triple Lock and find out why we didn't know that to have been false, that we published that information, and actually then revise our editorial processes, our collection processes, verification processes very regularly, about every six months. We have a full review of our editorial and publishing processes to ensure that what goes out the door gets, if you will, the Jane's kite stamp on it to say that is um, verified and assured by Jane's. And that continual process of refining, reviewing, updating our tradecraft, to kind of phrase, over the last many decades is why I'm very confident that when we put that in front of you, it's going to be usable. Um, something you mentioned just there, Harry, about not just sort of giving clients a lot of information to ingest, raw information, because obviously, as Sean mentioned earlier, that there is that element of overwhelm at the moment. We've got so much information out there potentially available um, that we can bring in, and a lot of it can be duplicate. We're obviously dealing with issues like disinformation these days as well. Um, and the importance of not just passing that on wholesale, I think that's definitely been an issue that certainly we've seen in some of the conversations and, and uh, projects we've done with clients where they are using, say, fusion processes or tools and platforms that ingest lots of information, and it just creates a lot of noise for them. Um, I think that's particularly pertinent within those contexts where different countries are working together. So we, talk, we think about international organizations like NATO or other types of alliances. Um, I wanted to sort of maybe pivot a little bit towards thinking about the sort of threats that we're now facing or countries and alliances are, are now facing, uh, especially as we start to emerge from the crisis of the current coronavirus pandemic and what might come next, you know, and how that might affect some of these cooperative arrangements, particularly around intelligence sharing, because I think that's one of the things that perhaps we can we can also touch upon in terms of open source intelligence and where that sits in terms of helping different countries, different organizations work together and share intelligence. Um, you know, intelligence sharing, absolutely critical to do, uh, easy to say, but hard to actually um, put into action just because of the different, different levels of sharing, the different uh, allies and, and partnerships. 
you know, I've been heavily involved with the Five Eyes, and that is a, you know, it is a pretty close club, and the intelligence sharing there is is very, very good. Um, but actually, we're never going to fight a war as a Five Eyes. It's always Five Eyes plus whoever. So you've got to make sure that, that everybody is is from fighting from the same same um, level playing field in terms of the information that's available for them to do do what they need to do. Um, extremely difficult at the classified levels not least of which the communications um, nodes don't always work. Um, you know, it took years to put together, for instance, the Afghan mission network, which is actually not bad at all, um, but huge amounts of money have gone in there. Um, and so sometimes you're not going to have the time and the resource to do that. Um, so that's where open source really does come in. So if you can, if you can use your exquisite or national intelligence and validate it with open source, and share the open source that that actually matches that, then then the world is in a far better place because you can actually get it to those who need it. And that's not just with the partners either, that's people who don't have necessarily the connectivity at the top secret and secret levels out in the field. And that really does make the open source piece really important. Um, the, Harry mentioned Tradecraft. Tradecraft, absolutely critical. And this is all about trusting the information that's provided. Just going back slightly to your, your last question, in terms of how you use that information, you've got to make sure that you consider every single piece of data and you've got to do it objectively. Now, over time and with experience, you learn what data is more uh, relevant, what is more accurate, partly through that feedback loop, but also by using certain tradecraft. And it is to an extent down to experience. So if you've got lots of nations using the same data that is sure as trusted, basically, then you know that any analysis and assessment they come in is, is also going to be trusted, particularly if they're using the same tradecraft. And, and this is where a reasonable perspective really comes in. A lot of people used to say to me uh, when I worked in the Defence Intelligence Agency, why should we share more intelligence? And my answer really was, well, why wouldn't you? Because the reciprocal is going to be there. And I always use New Zealand as an example here. You know, everyone says, oh, New Zealand, not a great, not a huge country in terms of intelligence production. But boy, do they produce some really good stuff because they've got a unique insight into their part of the world. Everyone looks at the world from, you know, from your own lens. They have relationships with China, for instance, and nobody else does. They have access to many of the South China Sea nations that others wouldn't. And they can give that perspective and add value where you know, even some of the bigger nations can't do that. So it's not a one-way flow. It really is making the best of all, all worlds. Yeah, maybe, Harry, if I can bring you in on that, on how that cooperation then translates into dealing with some of these major strategic threats that we're now facing and that some of the national and, and international security organizations are having to having to cooperate and, and share intelligence on. So, you know, what are those kind of strategic threats at the moment? How do you see those playing out? What do you see um, changing as a result of the current crisis? I know it's still, there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, yeah. but obviously with intelligence, you know, that, that's what we deal with. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, to trying to find shape in chaos, trying to find some degree of um, certainty in the uncertainty is is probably one of the greatest contributions an intelligence analyst can give to decision makers. Giving some shape, some sort of scenario view of what the future might look like uh, is key. Now, we don't know what the new normal will look like post-pandemic. I think we can all be reasonably confident that governments and populations will take health matters more seriously. When we hear about an incident happening in another part of the world, we won't assume it's only for them to worry about. We will think about it more carefully. But getting to the more strategic perspectives, 
I don't think we can be clear about what's going to happen, but I think we can be clear that it's going to probably have sort of like a whiplash effect. We could be swinging from a period of our recent history where we've started to see increasing amounts of cooperation to may maybe now flicking across to more competition, particularly around scarce resources. Or if we start to see large migrations of people, there's going to be concerns about border security, more isolationist policies perhaps starting to emerge. And within a um, an international organization like NATO, uh, or even the Five Eyes community, you know, where there is perceived competition between members uh, for certain types of information or resources, that could become a, a stress point across the membership of that organization. One that, that, by the way, I think the likes of NATO have encountered in different different ways over the decades has been in existence, and it has endured. So I think what's key for me is that whilst we may see some shifts in the short term for some military priorities, we may see more military aid, civil powers type work uh, going on for international organizations, perhaps more logistics support for the provision of medical supplies across international distances. As the emerging picture from the developing world starts to hit our screens in terms of well, what is happening behind the, the veil of uncertainty in Yemen right now, what's happening in Syria, what's happening on the ground in these camps that we've seen grow with tens of thousands of refugees, is COVID happening as much as we expect it to be in those areas? And if that is the case, how do we deal with it? For me, none of those questions can be answered definitively, but what can be certain is that we have to be ready to pivot from one direction to the next and retain cohesion in membership groups like NATO to ensure that we have some hope of dealing with these transnational strategic issues. So for me, I think the simple answer to that question is we don't know the future. NATO has been resilient in the face of very significant challenges over the year, including potential infighting amongst its own members. And I think what we need to be ready for is to pivot towards the new reality, the new challenges that are waiting for us um, as, the, as, the, as the situation develops, particularly perhaps in the developing world, which at the moment is somewhat opaque to us. We're very good at seeing what's happening in our own backyards. We're very, very good at seeing what's happening in the local cities and towns in the first world. I'm not convinced we're as clear yet about what's happening inside some of these developing countries that have no doubt got the same problems we have, but with nowhere near the support that we have in our own country in terms of healthcare, et cetera. And Sean, maybe I can come to you on that one in terms of strategic threat assessments. How do you see sort of that shifting? And um, is you know is threat assessment becoming harder to do given all of the, the huge level of uncertainty that you know Harry's just described there? Yeah, it's, it is a very big question. Uh, I think, so firstly, in terms of the, the grand strategy, you know, I think we are seeing a return to the, the national interest, the nation state. But for me, I don't think it ever really went away. If you look at NATO and if you sat on the military committees, as I have spent a lot of time doing, you'd realise that actually, you know, talking about NATO as an entity sometimes is quite unhelpful. You know, it is 30 nations sat together giving their own national views and then coming to a compromise. Now, sometimes that, that leads to the lowest common denominator, but actually, you know, sometimes it doesn't. Almost every year there is a there is some sort of crisis that then leads to a, you know, what's the relevance of NATO? Will NATO endure? And every year it does. Um, because it's the only show in town, really. You know, if you didn't have a NATO, you'd have to recreate it. It does some virtuous stuff. And, and importantly, it gets it. It's a political construct that has a security um, angle to, well, it, it is about security, but it is political. And just keeping those people, those organisations, um, nations around the table discussing things and having solidarity, which is absolutely critical, um, it, it is, and it, it's there to act as a deterrent. 
One of the questions you, you, you could ask now is, is, you know, with Article 5, what is, and this leads to your next part of your question, what is the threat out there? You know, the sort of traditional Third Shock Army coming over the, the, the inner German border, probably not relevant anymore, although that's a debatable discussion right now as well. But you've got all the new emerging threats out there, the hybrid warfare, the rogue actors, the non-state actors, cyber warfare. One of the vignettes I like to use um, in terms of sort of bringing the Article 5 to life is that, you know, if I walked down Washington, D.C., maybe seven or eight years ago and said, if a malign country was to impact in your, your um, political process, um, for voting for the president, would you see that as an act of war? And they'd probably go, oh, yeah, absolutely. So the next step is, okay, so if all the traffic lights got put out in Washington, D.C., you know, would you see that as an act of war? Now, there are those that think that the traffic flow would be better. Um, but, but now the question with, well, actually, I don't, I, I don't know about that. You know, is, is that an act of war, isn't it? If you were to say that someone put all the lights out on the eastern seaboard, is that an act of war? Probably right now they'd say yes. But there's no real threshold by which to go. And, if you, of course, if you get in somewhere like NATO and have that discussion you're going to get 30 different answers. Mm. So, so that is the really complex uh, challenges that they, they're going to have to consider going forward is, you know, what does constitute the Article 5, the threat, you know, to, to one threat to all? Um, you know, hopefully we'll never come to that, but it is a real, real challenge there. Um, mm. and, and, of course, there are those state actors now that are behaving, um, we'll just say irresponsibly, but certainly outside of international norms, one thing in, in the West, in NATO, in Five Eyes, you know, we, we do act within international norms in a reasonable way. Is that the relevant way of looking at things now? Or do we then lose any advantage we have by, you know, playing cricket with a straight bat, as, as I would say? <laughs> so really, really challenging questions there. And, you know, does NATO have the agility to answer those? Personal being not as NATO, it will put together organisations, talk, have treaties, have discussions and, and, and uh, you know, press conferences. But it's down to individual nations to decide where they sit on that. And when it comes to the four, you know, to actually then, then, then act accordingly. What's all that got to do with intelligence sharing? Well, it makes it even more important now that with all the plethora of threats out there, everything that I've been saying from, you know, resurgent states all the way down to, you know, individual lone wolves to pandemics, you know, which is probably the greatest threat we've come across in our lifetime, arguably. You know, you've got to share intelligence to, to find out what the ground truth is and therefore what you're going to do about it and get those regional and national perspectives. I think if you think about all those moving parts and all the difficulties we're going to have to see what's really happening in real time underneath all of those huge, huge topics that Sean just reeled off, opportunistic states who are potentially looking at all kinds of activities that aren't getting looked at right now because we're so all focused on uh, the pandemic. And then the, the non-state actors who are probably doing the same, who are seeing opportunities, no doubt, with all kinds of nefarious activities that just aren't being watched because police forces, armies, the public safety is being so focused on the health end of the spectrum rather than the military end of the spectrum of, of public safety. Mm -hmm. And for me, the ability for large organisations like NATO, the corporate organisations like Jane's, to step together and start to build a clearer picture, a more complete and accurate picture, means that we've got greater chance of finding the, the weak signals in the noise that may well be indicators of uh, emerging threats. And it's about finding those weak signals that I think 
a combination between government organizations and commercial organizations like Jane's is where we see the future. The ability to partner, to fill the flanks that the organization we're talking to doesn't have the capability or capacity to do that. That's where I think organizations like Jane's become relevant in that we can start to fill those gaps, start to build capability around where our customers either don't want to build capability, don't have the time, money or effort to do it. But if we don't, then we run the risk of not detecting those emerging threats, not seeing the, the thread that's starting to emerge in the noise, that after the fact, we'd look back and say, why on earth didn't we do something about finding that and deal with it before it became a real problem? Also, often the stitch in time saving nine is, is so, so relevant in intelligence terms. Just that little bit of investment in something that could have been detected, that wasn't done, that allowed it to become a real problem. And there are plenty of examples of that in history. So I think it's vital we get this partnership uh, and also recognition that more eyes on the same problem, more minds engaged in the same problem, get a, a higher chance of uh, success than, than less. Sure. Yeah, just, just to focus on that a little bit from uh, what we haven't talked about yet and, and the sort of global economic downturn, which is going to be significant, well, it is significant now. So, you know, extrapolate from that, the likelihood is that defence budgets are going to be robbed for you know, higher priority things, quite understandable. Now, what does that mean for defence capabilities? It probably means less expeditionary uh, activity. It may mean you know, some of the capital projects either being delayed or even cancelled. And it means really that the focus is going to be more internally by nations. The so what of that means that you know, we have to keep an eye on what's going on in the world. You know, the ungoverned spaces, I mean, we're seeing now the same conditions that created Al-Qaeda and ISIL again, with people keeping their eyes um, you know, away from those spaces, with people in extreme poverty, um, you know, uh, and, and organisations that are able to fill, that, fill that, uh, that, that space. We've got to keep an eye on those, otherwise you know, that threat that we haven't even looked at will come and kick us in the face. Yeah. Um, and of course, that all leads to everything we've been talking about, that information is key, but it's got to be the right information, it's got to be global, it's got to be interconnected, um, you know, and there's many examples, you know, putting together the, the 9-11 piece that in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, you know, possibly we could have put together the pieces and come back with, yeah, it would have happened. It was never going to happen at the time because there was so much information, it really was needles and several headaches. But that's the sort of thing we're going to have to come and get together and find the answers to those questions. And that is only going to be done, A, by using all of that open source information from whatever source it, it is, you know, everything from commercial satellites to, you know, scraping of social media, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and trying to at least hone down where to look and where to um, direct the more exquisite connection capabilities. Yeah, I think it's really important to, yeah, talking about those sort of trends and, and the kind of drivers that we see building to emerging threats and future threats. Um, I mean, Harry, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the things that we've been working on recently at Jane's in terms of some of the discussions we've been having with customers around um, helping them plan for how to deal with or how to understand those types of threats as they emerge. Well, it's a huge topic right now for a lot of the customers, particularly those customers that perhaps lack some of the uh, esoteric capabilities that Sean keeps alluding to. Or indeed, they have them, but not to this scale, the capacity they would like to have them, and therefore are struggling to fully understand their immediate environment and the wider environment they operate in, both geopolitically, but also economically, militarily, etc. Now, there are so many factors at play, and so many of those factors are completely unpredictable. You end up with this huge amount of uncertainty, 
as I was saying earlier, trying to find shape in that, trying to find something that you can actually start to predict and feel as though could support decision making is a real challenge, particularly if you take each of them as individual factors and try and analyze them to the nth degree and then fully appreciate how that will come together. That's a really, really hard thing to do. And I'm not convinced that many times that's successful either. A different approach that we've been taking with our customers um, globally is to help them develop an understanding of potential scenarios and using a scenario analysis platform to begin to address, nay, embrace the uncertainty, allow the uncertainty to be a part of your, your scenario, and then determine, if you like, from one from one perspective, you know, the most likely, the least likely, the most dangerous, that sort of analysis to, to emerge out of your ana- analysis of a developed scenario. Now, generally speaking, us humans are pretty good at dealing with complex matters, but not at an infinitely small scale and then rebuilding it from the atomic back to the macro detail. It's better that we operate at the conceptual level, at the scenario level, and then dig down into that as required in a sort of top-down approach. So the work we've been doing, Terry, with a lot of our customers globally has really focused on how we can help them develop an understanding of various types of scenario that may be in the future, the, the new normal, and then looking at how we can understand those scenarios, start to build contingency plans, but equally, and I would argue even more importantly, start to look for those signposts that we're heading towards scenario six rather than scenario 12, that we can begin to see that actually it's sort of hybrid between what we thought might be the least likely but most dangerous. That's starting to emerge in some respects. Those signposts, those abilities to detect the emerging threats or the emerging reality of the future is probably one of the most important things that we can do for our customers through that scenario analysis because it's in those signposts that the decision makers get a chance to A, mitigate threats, but equally to seek to exploit opportunities that may be in their national interest, whether that's commercial opportunities or whether that's something to uh, a more economic or so that that's up to them. But our ability to help them signpost the future, see where that vector is starting to emerge and then deal with it early enough is the key support that we've been, been offering. Clearly, it's a complex process. It's a time-consuming process. But what we're finding is that by doing this work early enough, we build a framework of understanding of the potential futures, plural. And from that, we build scenario signposts. And from that, we start to help our customers um, plot the path. In all of the above, we're finding that the relationship, the partnership between Jane's and its, um, its customers, as I was saying in answer to your earlier question, is now becoming the center of the relationship. It's a real partnership. They outsource to us things they know we can do for them, and we give into them, insource into them answers to the questions they need to then take inside the vault behind the firewall that only they can deal with, which clearly is not where Jane's works. So it's about scenario analysis. It's about developing those scenarios and the signposts. Sure, maybe if I can come to you on that, because Harry's given a great description of, of the sort of sort of scenario analysis we do at Jane's and how it assists some of our customers. But maybe from your perspective, have you used that sort of process before in terms of strategic planning? I'm sure you have, but maybe you can give a sense of the value of doing that. And also, just touching back on some of the previous points you raised about the current of current uncertainties we have around threat pictures, and you know, especially with economic disruption, and then looking much further ahead. Well, perhaps not so much so much further ahead, but thinking about things like climate change. You know, how how hard is it at the moment for strategic planners to really bring all of that together? And and you know, how how valuable is a scenario analysis process to that? 
well, I mean, the answer is obviously incredibly important. Um, but just going back onto what Harry said, what is critical is that using that end-to-end approach. You know, there is an awful lot of work put into tradecraft within the intelligence community. You know, it's got to be measurable. You've got to be able to prove what your analysis is. I mean, ironically, some of the best assessments are the lowest confidence, but that doesn't mean to say that you don't have the data. It just means that you're not sure about the data. So, you know, back to the validation thing. But, but you know, if, if I look at it, and we've been doing a lot of work, really, you know, getting ourselves into the head of the intelligence analyst. The intelligence analyst is there to provide the so what and the what if. I would never let any of my intelligence officers brief any senior without giving the so what and the what if. They even have to say that just to make sure they did. Because anybody can read the papers, as, as my boss used to say. But you've got to take it from, you know, okay, you, you, from all the way, all the data, get all the data together, you've got to collate it, you've got to manage it, you've got to weigh it. That takes an enormous amount of time. And I suspect if you talk to 100 analysts out there, and they are, they're quite rare beasts, but if you talk to, if you find 100 analysts out there, and you said, what is the number one concern I've got? It would be managing the data, whether that's collecting it off different systems, whether it's putting it into the same Excel spreadsheet, dare I say, uh, and then you know putting it to the right buckets. Um, probably, yeah, you know, well, a disproportionate amount of their time is spent doing that. When what they should be doing is doing that. So what? No worry. Okay, what does this mean? Um, and that's that the predictive analysis piece, which is the nirvana in the intelligence community that, that we've never really cracked as well as we could do. You know, what is going to happen next? What do I need to be worrying about? Um, and and you can't do that if you your head's down in in, in managing data. So, so, you know, that is where a really big part of, of James will help. But actually, uh, as, as Harry was alluding to, when you start to be able to apply machine learning, artificial intelligence, and pulling those seemingly disparate threads into one particular theme, thinking, oh, actually, I didn't know that that was linked to that, that then, you know, gives you that richer form of data by which you can make your assessment. You are always going to have the human in the loop at some stage, and you will you will hear within the community um, slightly digressing that you know there is a threat out there from artificial intelligence and machine learning. I don't believe that at all. What I do believe is it will make the assessments so much better, so much uh, more rich and valuable to the decision maker at what level that actually you're going to reinforce the intelligence analysts' um, you know um, rationale, if you like, reason to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that end-to-end approach is really important and working out, you know, the relevant um, pieces in which James can help. And, and to be frank, it, it's all of the above, you know, including your very clever analysts. Um, then that takes a huge chunk out of the out of the, the classifier stuff. And back to the massive breadth and, and depth of, of, of challenges, mm-hmm. you know, things like, you know, back to the Ebola crisis, you know, within the community, we didn't have a clue how to deal with that. It was, it, it, it's a non-traditional threat. You know, you couldn't see it, feel it, or shoot it, but it was as important to understand it as anything else. Now, that was an unclassified, you know, we call it a war, actually. It was an unclassified operation, but it took us an awful long time to get anywhere close to having the same understanding as we would, for example, about the third shock army coming over the injured border. So... You know, and, and, and that's there to stay. Climate change, water insecurity, you know, all the things that are really important and all are interconnected, but we don't understand them. And that is, I see, is a huge area where, you know, James can, can, can almost take, well, can take the lead on that and, and lead the intelligence community rather than the other way around. I have to say, I, I 
I must come in on that point, having spent so many hours and months in the recent years uh, looking at that particular point. So the point John just made there for me centers around um, an ability to fuse data together because A, you can be confident that what you're fusing together should be fused in that way. The entities, to use the modern parlance, are well and accurately defined. They are distinct and well resolved, so you can start to connect them in a reliable and standardized way. James has had to do that to itself because it's got 120 years of data that it's been collecting. And to sort that out and make it available in a coherent way to its customers means that internally we had to look at all the technologies available and apply them to ourselves. And what we found over the last, well, certainly the last two or three years, is that there is no shortage, no shortage at all, of providers of artificial intelligence who will tell you they can solve all the problems that you've got with their technology. That there are literally tens of them that we've met. What we found within that community, though, are very, very few in the defense environment that actually know what defense data really means. When you know, when you say to a machine typhoon, does it mean weather system? Does it mean a type of caravan? I happen to know it's a caravan known as the Typhoon GX, by the way. I'm not a caravaner, but there is one there. Or, or indeed the aircraft, right? Now, in data terms, that's not unusual. Disambiguation, as I believe it's called, is not an unusual problem. But in defense, it's an acute issue, really acute. And the ability to do that reliably and do that in a stable way is something that Jane's is uniquely placed to do because we've had to do it to ourselves for all the open source information we've collected over the last 120 years. And it is a vast amount of data. And we've connected it all. We've created a data dictionary that is now stable and standardized. We've got ontologies that connect all the elements together. And that is allowing us to step into artificial intelligence conversations with um, certain providers and help accelerate the rate at which their machine learning algorithms are learning about the data in the defense environment, because we're uniquely placed to do it. But by the way, just to stress again, I agree with Sean, artificial intelligence is not a threat, it's an opportunity. And we prefer the phrase augmented intelligence because it's really about saying to an analyst, don't spend the time collecting, collating, verifying, let the machine do that. The machines are pretty good at finding large amounts of information, sorting it for you, connecting it for you, and then presenting it to you so you can do the value added piece, which is the, the follow on. And that is precisely what's going on in James right now. So under the covers, not yet fully revealed to our customers in all respects, is this data-centric um, data model that James has been working on for quite a long time now, which very shortly will be public, which will allow our customers to work with their data in the defense and government space in a way they've never been able to before, because they'll actually be able to pour it in, see it sorted before their eyes and connected in a way that allow them to work with it in a much more effective way. And that's something for the future, but I'm very excited about the results we're already seeing for ourselves internally with our own intelligence cycle in support of our customers. So that's definitely coming. That's really interesting. I think especially we use that term augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence, because I think that's a really important point. I think it's probably, uh, you probably write books about the misuse of the term artificial intelligence because it does seem to have cropped up everywhere as a buzzword and um, it's probably not justified in uh, you know, 99% of those contexts. Um, but, and, and, you know, from the perspective of somebody who has been an intelligence analyst, I would say um, spending, having to spend less time wrangling data and uh, trying to collate it and organize it and more time, as Sean said, working out the so what and what if is going to make everyone's job so much better um you know and be able to give them the ability to do so much more and you know from the james perspective if we can help them do that i think that's uh, that's all to the good 
just sort of bringing this discussion to a close then in terms of sort of any final comments or remarks you wanted to make um sean did you have any other things you wanted to add to that or any other sort of comments you wanted to uh go back to or or touch upon i think my final strap line really would be the the importance the relative importance of open source now against the the, the highly classified stuff you know i come from a community which is has a certain culture, you know, they are incredibly professional and very good at what they do, but it's all still in, in many ways about that classified intelligence. There are still those that will deny that using open source is actually a form of intelligence at all. That paradigm, I can't believe I used the word paradigm, but that paradigm has now changed. Whether that's appreciated or not, it, it is. So whereas if you pluck a figure out of the air, you know, 80% of intelligence products has come from, you know, classified sources, with a little bit of sprinkling of of, um, of open source, um, you know, to to to, to add flavour to it or to fill the missing gaps. I think there's an inevitability, whether it's six months, whether it's a year, whether it's five years, of that reversing in terms of the open source being the the core to go to to work out what's happening, and then the classified stuff being used to validate and assure that. Um, that 80% or whatever it happens to be. So it's looking at it from a different perspective. There's so much information about out there. For me, that's inevitability. Um, so I think that is the future. I think if I was going to add to that, uh, and agree with everything Sean just said, Terry, but my final word on that would be, yes, I absolutely now am fully convinced of the power of open sources, but it needs to be exploited well. Uh, the open source environment, is going to drown you in data. That is an inevitability. You go and look at the Twitter feed, you get the, the host pipe, as it's sometimes called, pointed at you, and it will cover every information system's uh, available storage space in minutes with raw data. But what do I do with it? How do I actually use it? So the ability to engage with the open source environment is actually the bit that most people don't fully appreciate how to do. Um, they therefore will do it badly and therefore will assume that what they're getting from open sources is of, is of no value. When you learn how to do it well, and Jane's clearly over 120 years has become fairly proficient at doing that, you then get to see the true power that you can exploit out of the open source or publicly available information domain. And when you can do that is when you get to the point that Sean just made, which is open source becomes an indicator, a warning of things that are emerging perhaps, or maybe it becomes a way of validating what you may have found in a classified environment. That remains to be seen. The triangulation that I've just talked about that can go both ways, obviously. But whilst I absolutely agree with the power and the exploitation um, potential of open source or publicly available information, the key for me now is not getting access to content. It's knowing what to do with the content when you've got the access. And that's about a skill set, and maybe it's a tool set thing that, um, that James has got a lot of proficiency in, but we're there to help customers both in terms of getting access to curated stuff that we've done for them, or indeed we can train them on how to do it for themselves. But not knowing how to do it, I think is the biggest reason why many analysts don't understand or indeed disregard the open source environment. That's really, really useful, Harry. Thanks for that. I'm Terry Patter. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. If you want to find out more about our work, please come to the Jane's website. And for anyone who hasn't been to the website in a while, you will see it has changed radically in the last couple of weeks. Um, and it will be well worth a look. Particularly if you want to find out more about our work on threat assessment, go to janes.com slash threats. I just want to say a final thank you to my guests on the podcast this week, Air Vice Marshal Sean Corbett and Global Vice President of Janes, Harry Kemsley. Thanks for joining us. It's been a great discussion. Thanks, Terry. Thanks, Sean.